we are for another episode of Photo Geek Weekly. This is Don Kamarechka, your host, uh, as I have been the host for every episode, and this is 169, recorded on February, what is it, 22nd of 2023. And uh, this photo geekery show, I'm glad, has gotten back on the proverbial airways. Um, this is the third or fourth episode since we restarted things, and I am I, I'm thrilled to be talking to my good friend Alastair Jolie today. Um, I I feel bad, Alastair, because I I it's like. I consider you a friend, yet I've moved to Bulgaria. We are now technically on the same continent. But like we haven't like we sent a couple of emails back and forth, but I haven't seen your face uh, since I've been on the same continent. How have you been? Give me a little catch up. What's going on with you? I've been good, buddy. Good. Um, you know, not seeing my face isn't necessarily a bad thing, right? But um, <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. You're probably you're maybe actually still the exact same distance away from me as you were when you were in Canada. So. <laughs> this is true. On one side, it's a continent, and on the other side, it's the ocean. But yeah. uh, but at least we're only two hours apart, time difference wise. And uh, makes for those easier. that don't know, exactly, it makes it easier. And for those that don't know, um, Alistair uh, is well. What is your official title at uh, Smug Mug? I am the global brand manager for Smugmug and Flickr. Okay, so uh, you, you you're an important guy for those two companies, and uh, the liaison with the community happens a lot through people just like yourself. And uh, I, I thought it was really important to have you on to talk about the first story that we're going to dig into here. And uh, and as usual, there's four stories and picks of the week and some banter all about them. But number one, reported on uh, Petapixel, Meta will start charging for uh, $12 uh, a month for verification on Instagram. And I'm sure it's not just Instagram. Uh, Meta owns Facebook as well. Yep. So um, Mark Zuckerberg's um, Meta is taking a page out of Elon Musk's Twitter playbook, uh, as I'm reading from the article here, uh, and will roll out paid verification to both Instagram and Facebook starting this week. Now, one of the things that they're really... Uh, I guess, advertising with this is extra impersonation protection, which I think it, it bothers me because that impersonation protection, I'll occasionally get people uh, that send me a friend request on Facebook, but they're already my friend. And it's a, somebody impersonating that person trying to get into uh, my DMs and sell me some pyramid scheme or something. You know, there, there is an impersonation problem, I think, on Facebook. And now to add offer uh, to, to add additional protections to, to offer them to people at a price when you're not fixing the problem for everybody, I find to be somewhat unethical. But Flickr. Uh, has had uh, Flickr Pro for a long time and offers certain additional features from their perspective. So that's why it's important for you to be on the call and talk about what Meta's doing versus what Smug Mug and Flickr have been doing for a long time. And I am a subscriber for Flickr Pro. Mm -hmm. What are the differences here? Well, first of all, what do you think about what Meta is doing? Uh, and we're going to talk more about it. But what is Flickr Pro as well in comparison? Yeah, there's two. There's a very clear distinction, but we'll come to that first. First, my we'll come to that later. First, my thoughts on what what Meta is doing. It it does seem a strange one. This um, extra impersonation protection. It, it feels like a, a nice phrase to really, in my opinion, just disguise a, a revenue stream that they're trying to turn on. Um, yep. Because if someone. In someone in your world, like sends your friends request, you know, having a, a blue badge or verification tick or something, you know, it doesn't. It's not the first thing you look for, right? You're looking for, you know, is this my friend? Whether they have a, a verification or not, it's it's not going to really, I think, limit or change the amount of impersonation that goes on at the moment. I occasionally get it as well, as you mentioned. You get it, you know, someone either saying they're me or me receiving a friend's request from someone I'm always already friends with. But would I, I guess we're just not educated enough yet to go check if someone is, is verified or not, because we, we haven't had to in the past. Um, I think from reading into my little bit, anybody 
who is already verified on these accounts won't have to apply for this new payment system that they're bringing in. Yeah, um, that, that's interesting because, of course, uh, Facebook and Instagram already have a verification system right. uh, in the same way that uh, that Twitter did. And you get your your blue check that says that you were verified. And, and we're not going to get into the can of worms that is Twitter uh, for no. the, the sake of this particular story. But uh, when you read the article on, on Petapixel, they do mention uh, some and you kind of have to read between the lines uh, a bit about it. That it's not obviously it's not just this uh, you know authenticity uh, service, but they they add some uh, some language that suggests that people that pay this twelve dollars a month will be able to grow their audience uh, faster and larger and interact with them uh, on a greater level than people that are not paying the twelve dollars. Now, I've paid a lot of money into Facebook ads over the years, mm-hmm. you know, just to engage with my audience or to grow it based on, say, if I'm doing my Snowflake series, I can target the ads specifically to uh, people interested in meteorology, science, and photography, uh, and also love winter. Well, that group of people is probably going to be very interested in Snowflake uh, images. And so I was able to target that, but it gets expensive. What if, as a catch-all, anybody that wants their audience to be larger pays the $12 a month, and now you're into this pay-to-play scenario, which Facebook ads has been doing for a long time, whether or not you're running ads or posting content, you'd be on the hook for $12 a month. And if you uh, should cancel that subscription, then a lot of the features that you're building your brand around would go away. Big, small, doesn't matter. This is the kind of thing that if you buy into, it will be really hard to stop because you'll be so used to the interaction and the engagement. And so uh, the people that use the social media platforms, like the the meta platforms, they are the product, right? Advertisers pay money to get access to this audience. The people are the product. And now they're making the product pay the company additionally. And I, I'm not okay with that. Will I end up doing it? Not right away. I'm going to see what sort of an impact this has on, on other people before the big scheme of things. If you're a business, $12 a month is not a huge expense. Uh, if that allows me to maintain my large audience and my biggest audience, uh, right now is on Facebook. Second biggest is on Instagram. So this, this is meaningful to me. If my engagement, and this is going to infuriate me if this is true, if my engagement drops off after this comes out, then that is the incentive for me to pay Meta $12 a month in order to retain the same level of engagement I used to have. Right. I have a suspicion that that's going to happen. Yeah, what I think you we think? saw that on Instagram, right? That was, you know... Um, if you didn't play their game, which you know they wanted you to upload videos and reels, and if you didn't play that game, your engagement fell off. And you know, I think the same here is they they have a definitive playbook that they want you to follow, and it looks now like this is one way they're going to monetize you to do it. You mentioned there it's fine if you're a business. I mean, obviously, my experience is both personal and you know looking after two brands who have social accounts. Um, you know, so for. For the everyday person using this product, is it really that relevant? Um, they seem to want to use this as a way to attract new audience. Like look at my my kids' generations; none of them use Facebook. Like n- my kids never had Facebook. He's not interested. They're not interested. You know. So, are they trying to get new young creators, new young business minded people to get into Facebook by saying, "Hey, you can be verified and grow your audience in this way." Um, so I think I think it's you know something along those lines of trying to um, encourage or um, inform a new audience that this is a cool way to protect yourself and, and help get better engagement because everybody's a sucker for the terminology of hey we'll help you with more engagement. You mentioned um, there about um, you know you become the product on these platforms. So let's talk about Smug Mug and Flickr. That is the clear distinction between what's happening here. On Smug Mug, it's always been a paid-for product. On Flickr, we want people to go Flickr Pro and play, pay for 
Flickr Pro. We are not interested in people's data and we're not interested in selling ads. That's not our business plan. We don't want people to become the commodity. When you use free social media, they, they, they actually don't want you to pay for it, right? Your data that you give them for free is way more valuable than anything you could pay in a subscription. Oh, yeah. So with SmugMug, you've always paid for a plan. Therefore, we work to benefit the photographers who use SmugMug. When we acquired Flickr, there's obviously a huge number of people on Flickr free, on the free platform there. And we do monetize that through ads. So people watching content on Flickr um, as a Flickr free user will see ads pop up in various places during that experience. Our preference would be that nobody sees an ad. Right. We'd rather people pay for Pro. I, I've never which seen an ad. Takes ad. <laughs> because you're Pro. You're a Flickr exactly. Pro user. That's right. right. So, and uh, and so I, I understand that Flickr Pro offers me, uh, you know, a sort of limitless storage of of my of my images yep. on the platform, and I'm not sure exactly what the uh, requirements are. Uh, I know that at some point in the past, and this might still be true, that uh, there was a limit to the number of, um, of of groups that you could put a photograph into. Uh, when you were free versus basically it's uh, unlimited uh, for Flickr Pro. And there's other benefits to that point. But um, if I'm a Flickr Pro subscriber, and you know, if I'm paying that, I think it's a quarterly fee that, that, that I pay, uh, does that mean that my engagement just from like, re regardless of how many uh, places I can you know throw my images in, uh, but just from a discoverability standpoint, are my images more discoverable than a free account or the same across the board? It's the same across the board. There's a there's the clear distinct differences between pro and free on Flickr is no ads when you go pro. And that's, you know, social media, most social media wants you to see more ads. That's how they make their money. We yeah. want you to see less ads. We'd, we'd love you to go pro and see less ads. We're not an ad selling business. The... Storage limits are the other key distinction. So, as you said, on free, you can have up to a 1,000 images, which is still a lot of images. If you're curating your images and putting up the best images yeah, there, yeah. a 1,000 images. On Flickr Pro, it's unlimited. And then there are there's a couple of other little benefits. One, a Pro member will get um, a faster response time from our customer support. There's a more dedicated channel for... Um, pro users to get um, a faster response there just by a bit uh, but it's you know it's an extra little something and then there's a few perks um, but the main distinction is no ads and unlimited storage and that's why I like Flickr as a platform. I try to direct as many people to see my work there. Not only do the images uh, present beautifully at very high resolution with uh, none of the you know the compression that meta uses on their platforms is pretty bad uh when you're trying to mm -hmm. you know explore the the finest details of things and Flickr doesn't do that so um anyhow i, I to, to go back to to the uh, the meta subscription 12 dollars a month um 15 if you bought it through ios by the way that's bizarre right i couldn't understand the, what, what's the difference between buying it on uh, desktop that, and buying it on ios because apple gets a piece of the pie if they buy oh, it they, if, you buy, yeah, if you buy something so yeah Exactly. So they're trying to, uh, you know, of course, differentiate a little bit there uh, and to cover their losses through the Apple platform as the a result store. of it. Yeah. Uh, and that uh, disincentivizes people from buying it through Apple. And, uh, and I'm sure that there's some, uh, there were some interesting discussions at Facebook and oh, at okay. Apple when this was announced. Uh, but $12 a month. And you know what? I, I'm paying the, the quarterly thing for Flickr Pro, and I'm paying subscriptions for so many different services for Adobe. And, and by the way, I should mention, this is a, a PSA. Anybody that has an Adobe subscription, try to cancel it right now. Just go try. Go try. And, and before you get to the end of the cancellation process, you will be granted a 50% discount for the next year. So uh, everybody, you're welcome. Uh, you can do this yearly. Every year, set a reminder on your phone to go and cancel your Adobe subscription when they're charging you full price. This is if you've got the full suite as I do. I'm not sure if the same discount applies to just the photography bundle or not, uh, but there's money to be saved for all. Uh, you are you're welcome. 
Uh, okay, let's let's move on to the next story here. Uh, there has been some camera announcements. Uh, it's not exactly mm-hmm. from the past week, but we didn't touch on it yet on the podcast. Um, Canon has announced the EOS R8 and R50. And I found an article that combines a lot of information together uh, from News Shooter. And these two new cameras, uh, both with the, the uh, uh, RF mount, are the, the newest entry-level offerings for Canon. Uh, the R8 has the same sensor as the uh, R6 Mark II mm-hmm. and a body that's very similar to the, uh, the RP. And the R50 is a much smaller body using an APS-C size sensor um, that is basically telling us that the EOS M mount is completely dead and will never be revisited because that is now yeah. within the, the RF mount. Um, I'm assuming you've taken a look at some of the specifics of these cameras, Alistair. Did anything jump out at you? Uh, they look great on paper. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm such a geek that even though brands that I don't use, such as Canon, I still keep up to date with all the latest and greatest. Even yesterday, there was new lenses come out for Sony. And, you know, I always pay attention to them because I'm a geek and love all that type of stuff. Um, I keep thinking, you know, 20 years ago as a working professional photographer, I would have loved any camera that's on the market right now. Yeah. You know, these, these are, you know, kind of, classified as their entry-level cameras but boy do they pack a punch like there's just so much great stuff in both these cameras i would happily use any of them um for me you know there's a clear choice between whether you want full frame or you know crop sensor um that's a a very easy decision you know you know the r8 is great if you want full frame r50 is great if you're, you're that doesn't concern you um i would say the biggest distinction between these two cameras is probably the in-body stabilization. Yeah, the uh, the R50 lack, doesn't have it. Lack of it in yeah. R50. That's probably the one thing that the R8 really packs, you know, a big benefit over the R50. Obviously, if you have stabilization in your lenses, that will still work, but R8 has the, the in-body stabilization. I'm still annoyed with Canon because they don't have the um, sensor shift high-resolution mode built into cameras that have an in-body stabilizer. Mm. And uh, my suspicion is that it's patent encumbered and it would cost them money to add that feature. And, uh, you know, Panasonic has it in their full frame uh, mirrorless bodies and uh, and in their micro four thirds and uh, Olympus or OM systems has it. Fuji has it on their medium format cameras. Sony's got it too. Um, Just explain, that's where the sensor moves to add more... Size, yeah, so more uh, Olympus itself. has somewhere it takes four or five shots. Sony takes 16. Panasonic is eight shots. And you move the, the sensor ever so slightly, you know, a fraction of a pixel, and it combines yeah. them together to, uh, in most cases, quadruple the resolution. And that's a feature that I use quite a bit, especially for macro photography, I'm because sure, yeah. I can get further away from my subject, knowing that I can crop in and throw away 70, 80% of the image. Uh, because, you know, the the quality is still there. So long as I'm not shooting at a very small aperture, I limit myself to F11 at the smallest, usually F8 or 5.6 or somewhere in that neighborhood. And uh, I inherently increase my depth of field when I'm further away from the subject. And so focus stacking is less required as a result. And so I'll often now with that mode enabled focus stack two frames for like a flower or a water droplet refraction shot or something like that. um, When I can use this feature. Uh, rather than, you know, with snowflakes, I still have to uh, combine on average about 40 shots focus stacking because I can't use that mode with that particular subject. And I'm so happy that that's a feature that I've got in my cameras. Canon, you could add this. This could be a great benefit to you, uh, even on the entry level bodies, although Canon has always tiered these features to be on the most expensive, sure. but it's not there either. Um, but let's face it, really- Don, your, your use case, your, your- you know, you're pretty niche there, you know, and, and <laughs> I am. you know, the work yeah. you do in that macro stuff is, is super technical and, you know, you're not, you're not going to be looking at an entry level camera for that, but for 80% of people out there, maybe even more, either of these cameras is a killer camera um, compared to what, as I say, what we used to shoot with back in the day when digital first started, when 35 mil first started, you know, there's just, there's no bad cameras out there anymore. 
That's true. There are 24 megapixel cameras, each of them. Um, but uh, what, what I found interesting is that these cameras do not have a fully mechanical shutter. You have two options. You can use an electronic shutter or you can use a first curtain electronic shutter. So if you're familiar with how a camera shutter works, normally a shutter is blocking the, uh, the image plane and that shutter rises to reveal the image plane and another one at the end of the exposure rises to cover it and then it resets and it continues in that same sequence. Where an electronic first curtain means that you don't have that closed first curtain. It's just you turn the, you start collecting data at a certain point, and then a mechanical shutter closes it off. Yeah. Uh, I, I found that curious. I, I don't know if it's a cost saving measure. Uh, you know, it, it does introduce some issues with, um, with bokeh in, in the background that it, that it appears cut off in certain areas. And I saw some good examples of that uh, from some DP Review TV reviews of both of these cameras. And they, they showed some of the differences. So uh, you know, make sure that you check out some of the video reviews of these cameras. And the, uh, the electronic viewfinder. Uh, we've had really high resolution viewfinders available on the market for more than five years now. These are using uh, 2.36 million dot OLED viewfinders. And I, I've used those, uh, but I find the, the threshold of acceptability right now to be around 5 million dots. Anything less than that, it just feels antiquated today. And yes, I understand their entry-level products. They're coming in at uh, the uh, R50 was six, uh, 679 US for just the camera body. Uh, and the R8, I believe, was around 1500 So I understand that there's a price point and that there's a cost measure here. But you still have people jumping across from you know Canon Rebels or from their phone and, and buying into the system. I would have liked to have seen a little bit better. I don't even say five, but come up with something in the three range just to make these cameras feel less antiquated than a camera that you could have gotten five or six years ago. You just feel that's where it's lacking. I think the, the shutter thing is interesting. I, in all the years I've been shooting, you know, or taking pictures, the only real failures I've ever had in any cameras are shutters, right? The the shutter leaf goes. Right. Typically, that's the part because it's the most you know the stress that thing's under and what it does is quite remarkable. The speed that it moves at for such a delicate piece. So maybe removing one of those might actually you know give this make this a little bit more robust. Have give it a longer shelf life. Or you know when we get to what we call entry level cameras now is that maybe the factor is it maybe that it's not as robust it's not as um you know you know doesn't maybe have the longevity of of some of the the higher end cameras is that maybe the payoff um rather than all these great features it has you know where it's almost doing everything that the high-end cameras do is that the payoff you know not quite as rugged not quite potentially as long-lasting it costs a couple of hundred dollars to replace the shutter in a camera. Mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, that's an acceptable expense if your camera is $8,000, right? I mean, you're, you're going to pay to have that repaired if you've completely shot through it. But if your camera is less than $700 and it's going to cost you $300 or more to replace the shutter because you've worn the camera out, well, you've probably been using it for years. And uh, these are, I, I don't want to uh, predict the future, but these are kind of a yearly refresh or every 18 months yeah. or something that another one comes out. Uh, are you going to spend the money to fix the old one or are you just going to spend a little bit more to get the next one? Uh, I think that's really where these are consumer replaceable products at this point. And you're right, maybe, maybe it does last longer. Time will tell. Uh, we'll have to circle back in a couple of years and see how all of these cameras are, are holding up. But at the very least, there's no flapping mirror mechanism in there. Uh, and so fewer moving parts generally uh, could relate to a, a stronger, more robust product. Yeah, we'll I hate the see thought of replaceable consumer products in that way, you know, the, you know making it a com you know, consumable that we've, we've got in, in technology we've got so used to it you know new phones come out every year we want the latest phone we get rid of the old one you know maybe I'm sounding like an old dinosaur but you know back in the day we kept our cameras for a long time and we still have them right I have some on screen behind me here um, if you could see but um, I hate that we've got so accustomed to thinking every year I'm going to replace it when 
you know, 1500 bucks is a lot of money and a working photographer yeah. can make that camera last a long, long time from a technology point of view. But if I the, used a, uh, uh, a, what was it? The, the 5d Mark two, I got it in December of 2008 and I used that camera for six or seven years before I upgraded to a, uh, a 1dx. And then I had it converted to infrared photography and I continued mm -hmm. to use it, right? You know, yeah. it was it was a huge asset for me that I only recently got rid of when I moved. And and I was thinking to myself, you know, that was a 21 megapixel camera. Yes, it was only 3.9 frames per second or something. So not the greatest for action and what have you, but it was a workhorse of a camera that if I if I still had a need for, I ended up converting a, a Lumix S1 to full spectrum photography. So it was time to, to sell it uh, on to you know, a new owner and hopefully it's still in use today. But that level of longevity, I don't think we're seeing on these entry level cameras right now. But you know, prove me wrong. People, yeah, but is that know. is that the camera that's that's not given this longevity or our desire for new technology that makes it, you know, I was wanting yeah. to buy new something when we we could probably continue using the thing. And I, I think we're I think we're fought, we're moving that way in the world of it's a desire to constantly have the latest and greatest without justification to, yeah, to need to that's... need all those bells and whistles, right? It's it's just a desire when you know, as a photographer, I just needed a box with a hole in it, and I can make a, <laughs> you know, make a living. So, <laughs> well, hey, you know, I, I did not buy the iPhone 14 uh, this go around, and uh, who knows? Maybe I won't get the 15. The 13 is perfectly fine, I'm and I remember holding on to my iPhone 6s for five years or six years. Now I had that for a long time before I decided to, to upgrade it, and and the idea. Uh, with that was it was good enough. I didn't use it for photos. It was just a content consumption device. And so yeah. long as it was still receiving security updates, that was fine. But now even, you know, my phone, I take a lot of photos with this. I've done some pretty cool macro images with the phone itself. And now I'm thinking, okay, well, if the 15 really, you know, it puts a, you know, that, uh, high resolution raw format on the wide angle camera for macro, I might, I might jump in and buy it. And then, I mean, how much, uh, waste goes into the world when now I've, you know, bought a very luxurious consumer product every single year I'm with you. Um, and I'm a part of the problem. I admit it. <laughs> I try yeah. not to be though. I try to say, okay, well, can I survive with what I've got? Is it holding me back? And for the most part, Cameras these days are not the limiting factor. The photographer and your creative uh, energies are sure. the limiting factor. The camera's better than you in terms of its technical proficiency. Uh, get more creative, you know, gain skills and talents and, uh, you know, improve yourself rather than your gear. But we all have this delusion of grandeur that we are great photographers. <laughs> uh, e e yeah, yeah, some of us are. You mean we're not? Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> Some you. of us are not. And uh, I, I still remember I was uh, I was doing a one-on-one -on -one private lesson with somebody and they had at the time uh, the flagship Canon 1D body was the 1DX or the Mark II, I can't remember. Uh, and they had all the kit. They had the Canon dual, um, uh, dual macro, the twin light flash, and they had the MPE 65 millimeter lens. And they booked me for a workshop having not used any of the gear in in a way that was away from the automatic setting mm. and i don't even know if the 1dx has an auto setting mode i never used it if it had it but i was thinking okay uh maybe not the greatest place to start to to just you know go in and spend these thousands of dollars yes the gear is good but it doesn't necessarily make you better as a photographer and we're, we're gonna maybe touch on that when i get to my pick of the week as a bit of a premonition but yeah, I listened back in the day when I was shooting weddings, I would often turn up to photograph a wedding and be outgunned by Uncle Bob or someone who had all the latest gear, all the ah, latest drunk you know, Uncle Bob with his light lenses. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, I could, uh, you know, I could still, uh, out, you know, outshine them all the time with my old gear. And as a business owner, you try and make your gear last as long as possible. So that doesn't concern me, but yeah, I'm still, I'm still on an older iPhone. 
the new ones look great, but there's a couple of thousand reasons why I didn't buy the new one. Uh, a couple of thousand bucks, right? So, yeah. It's exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not cheap. Um, but there's ways for us to get more mileage out of our old cameras or our old images, uh, or even our current ones, for that matter. Um, DP Review put together a head-to-head, and I'm so glad that somebody did this because I've uh, I've been using um, Topaz Gigapixel AI. In the past, I've used On One Resize, and now they've got an AI version of that too. Uh, and it looks promising, and I was going to do a test, and then I saw this article, and I think, okay, now I don't have to because they've done the work for me. And they're also comparing the Adobe Super Resolution to these other AI systems. The article is great. Take a look at it. Go and see this for yourself because there's a lot of examples of different types of subjects, different types of magnifications, and how these different algorithms and tools uh, compute the data. Uh, The side-by-side stuff in that article is really good. The side-by-side is so useful. Um, Now, I would say from my interpretation of this information that the Adobe Preserve Details 2.0 and Super Resolution are... I mean, that, that's the baseline. That's what they were using to compare. It does not hold a candle to the On One Resize AI and the Topaz Gigapixel AI. It's just, it's a world of difference between them. And I wouldn't even bother with the Adobe stuff. Take a look. If you're going to upscale something uh, or you want to eco out the greatest amount of detail possible, Adobe is not your answer, at least not mm-hmm. right now. Uh, what do you think of the differences, um, Alistair, between On One and Topaz? Yeah, I, I mean... Again, I have to admit, Topaz was my go-to. Um, the Gigapixel AI is the one that I've used. I, I must admit, there's d- different use cases. You know, if I'm just trying to upscale something quickly for work, and it's not, you know, it's not going on a billboard, it's not going into publication. I did use, you know, I've used the Adobe stuff, and never really went down this route of side-by-side comparisons. But I've always known that if I wanted the best detail I could when up, you know, increasing the size of something, especially if there's a lot of written uh, details in the photography, a lot of signage, a lot of wording, I would always go to Topaz. And this article, when I saw these side-by-sides, it, you know, again, on one and Topaz are night and day ahead of, you know, leagues ahead of the Adobe stuff um, as far as this this article goes. Uh, and that was quite surprising. Um it, it looks like, yeah, it, it looks like Topaz, uh, you know, this author agrees that Topaz just, you know, is, you know, better in all sort of scenarios. Uh, I think there's a few where On One shined pretty well. but um, On One has issues with noise in a couple of them that I found that it was just not interpreting the data. Yeah, some of the yeah. artifacts and, and big flat areas, the color artifacts and stuff that on one was putting in that was really surprising it was quite disappointing to see that there was a photo of a, of a green truck and i think on one uh did better in almost every example of the close-up details of the tire and the grill compared to topaz uh, and i found that it also did better in some of the high contrast areas but when when topaz was better it wasn't uh, a marginal improvement. Mm, it was a it was dramatic, dramatic improvement. Uh, there, there's one image in the article um, that uh, shows uh, a, a woman in a Formula One car. And uh, she's got sort of a, a blonde shortcut hair. And the on one version is, it, I hate to say it, it's garbage. It's got the noise it's issue the that's coming yeah. up. Uh, and it just does not improve the data at all. But the Topaz version, compared to the original or, you know, what Adobe was doing, um, the Topaz one is just remarkable. But you have to, you know, temper your expectations in in that this is not reality. The, the original does not have the data for the texture of her hair, yet the Topaz version creates it. It's mm-hmm. injecting information into the scene as it sees where it should be. And these algorithms do the same thing for animal fur and for bird feathers. Uh, you add information from your database of samples based on where it should apply to the original input. And some people might be against that because it's now, I mean, what is reality? And that's a bigger question for possibly another podcast, but that that is a whole topic. I have been using 
uh, Topaz Gigapixel AI uh, for my latest series of snowflake images. And they're, snowflakes are geometry, right? It's a lot of hard lines. And the sharper you can get them, the more detail you have a perception of. And so I found that their, uh, their low res mode worked really well to get rid of noise and smooth things out. The latest update from Topaz, uh, their standard model has been greatly improved. And I think that's what they used here. Will on one catch up? Well, you bet. I mean, these are the two front runners, I think, uh, in this system. And it's only a matter of time before on one resize AI gets better than its current version. So check them out as, as they are right now. Um, I, I would say, just like you, as much as I love uh, the, the folks at On1, this comparison definitely favors uh, the Topaz crew. And, uh, and so, yeah, uh, yeah, if you want to get it's the an interesting images, there it is. Interesting debate about the, you know, the ethics of, of doing it. I guess it obviously depends on the type of photography you're doing. If you're a photojournalist and stuff, then, you know, then this is obviously, um, you know, a big question mark about, you know, acceptable to add in pixels that aren't aren't there um whereas if you're creating an art piece or you're just a you know a regular photographer or a commercial photographer looking to mm-hmm. make a make a an image you know for the side of a billboard or something then this is you know this this is great to have this type of technology there that's sampling from your picture and just filling in some of the blanks to make to make it bigger but um yeah, it's, everybody's thoughts are going to be slightly different, and I definitely think it comes down to the genre of photography that you're involved with. And I don't just let it, uh, you know, add detail. Well, what I'll typically do is I'll use the the four times or the six times enlargement, and then I'll scale it back down considerably, down to maybe. Um, 8,000 pixels across, right? So it's bigger than the original, but still a lot smaller than the enlargement. And uh, at least with, uh, you know, these programs, they'll create the modification on a separate layer in Photoshop is how I use it in my workflow. And so then I'll take the layer with the AI upscaling and I'll drop its opacity down to about two thirds, like 65% or something in that neighborhood. And then with a layer mask on that layer, using a burning brush, I'll burn the highlights of the mask down, which basically means I will fade it further away from being relevant uh, in the areas where I think it goofed up. And so I'm still adding my intelligence into this because I know that it's not perfect and it's going to interpret the data in a way that might not be appropriate. So you have that ability as well uh, with all of these platforms. And I encourage, as just putting the final polish on a piece of work, um, that you do that. Take a look at these software. Uh, it is, it's really how I push myself that extra little bit further, get that extra 2% of quality. And sometimes that makes all the difference. So I, I'm kind of obsessed about the details uh, of, of my work. And I'll spend many hours, sometimes week working on compositions. Uh, I've got one right now that's currently, uh, you know, later today, after we're done this recording, I'm going to to explore. And it's one that over the past week, I have been trying different things and failing and coming up with new ideas and, uh, and, and working through that. And it can be time intensive. Uh, and time is, is money. Time is like, I got documentary projects that are really good paying things that, uh, of course they ask me to do the most insane, obscure niche sciencey things. Uh, and you know what? There's money in that. But the last story is an interesting one because I spend a lot of time on my work. What if I was asked to stay for three whole months in a hotel to photograph the hotel's renovations. So there's a hotel in Maui. The Grand uh, Wailea Hotel is looking to hire a chief creative photographer, says Petapixel, uh, who will receive a three-month residency at the hotel, daily food and beverage uh, stipend, and $10,000 at the end of it to capture imagery of the recently renovated property. This is not the first time that uh, hotels in various parts of the world have done this. Uh, they are offering payment. In other cases, there was a hotel in Iceland that didn't offer any payment, but your stay at the hotel was free. What do you think about this this model? Uh, and would you do it? Well, I have to talk fast because I have a flight to catch to Hawaii shortly. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's 
listen, listen, yeah, this is nothing new other than, you know, some of the, the, the detail of, of, you know, fairly decent payment uh, to the photographer in this case. We are all familiar with, you know, the influencer world who get treated to stays in hotels all day long just to, you know, post a few pictures. But the goal of this is 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 actually a photography job, not just a an influencer job that we've kind of seen in the past. This is a newly re- renovated property. At first I read it thinking you were going to have to stay on a building site while they were actually renovating it. But <laughs> yeah, I, I got that idea fi- at yeah, first. They but finished, I, I yeah, they finished them. You're coming in at the end. Yeah, so you've got a nice day and they're looking for, obviously, commercial photography, brochures, website, social media imagery for this new renovation they've done. They probably, like many, could have went the direction of just getting somebody there willing to have a nice day and some nice food and get some pictures. They look like they're doing a little bit better than that by offering you know a decent chunk of money, ten grand, um, to to stay and create this um, imagery. The big part that's missing for me is just exactly what that contract is for what amount of work. Like you're there for three months. Are you done at the end of three months? Or is that just to take pictures and then they're going to want other stuff after that? Um, are are I, you working eight hours a day every day for three months? You know, like what, yeah. what is what is the, the time commitments to this? But also, uh, you know, if you're a wedding photographer uh, in, in Maui, I'm sure there's lots of business for you. Uh, over three months, that's a lot of weekends. And uh, 10,000, if, if you're a photographer and they're asking for you to submit a, a portfolio of work, if you're a photographer, uh, amongst the best that they receive, uh, you know, a portfolio from 10,000, it might sound like a lot, but that's three months of work. When, if you could charge a couple of thousand dollars a weekend for weddings, you're going to be making a heck of a lot more doing the wedding circuit than doing this, uh, you know, this, this Maui hotel project. So yeah, if, I think they're, if you're they're in that environment and you're, yeah, you're worth your salt. Um, then I, I don't know. Th- they might be attracting a lot of those photographers with that delusion of grandeur. Um, and who knows how many of them will. And I'm, I'm not saying anybody's actually going to do this, but that would put together a false portfolio of work uh, in order to get a three month stay at a nice hotel. And then at the end of it, well, um, they'll have pictures, but they might not be the best. Uh, my my honest opinion is they're just they're looking for someone at a certain point in their career. I think that is actually what's happening here. They could you know spend you know a hundred thousand and get a commercial photographer in who could produce amazing work within one week. Let's say you know no matter how big a hotel is, there's you know is there really three months work there? Um, I think they're looking for someone who's relatively early or fresh in their career who's looking for opportunity probably somebody who's single um you know this is the type of job I, you know i wouldn't want to do i wouldn't want to leave the family for three months just to to earn 10k as you said there's many ways to make that kind of money in a week in a few weeks um so i think this is certainly going to resonate with someone who's you know early in their career fresh in their career and I'll be honest, there's plenty of young talent out there that could easily produce the standard of work that they're looking for. Have yeah. a great three months, have some cash in their pocket, have some great food, they probably have a great time. Um, so I think I'd, I wouldn't knock anybody who, who who goes for this. If you're in the right place to go for this job, I think for the right person, this could be an awesome opportunity. My doubt with it all comes into the amount of money a fairly sizable business is willing to invest in photography. That's my biggest concern. Right. Uh, I I would say that there's also a hidden opportunity here too. Nowhere in the article does it mention video. And uh, maybe in the contract, they don't mention video uh, at all. So here's some fun. I would uh, take like a second camera body and shoot a bunch of video while I'm doing the stills, right? And then I've got all the video that I could present to the, uh, uh, to the hotel afterwards. And I say, all right, well, you didn't ask for it, but I did it during this time. 
And it didn't take away from the time that I was doing other things. Uh, it was just there. And if you want it, well, you can pay me for it. Uh, and you can put together a, 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 a roll of footage of their live performances and people uh, and, and various elements and get video to these guys as well. I've done this kind of strategy for uh, the documentary film work where I'll get a shot list and it's usually fairly specific uh, and they want exactly as it's described and, and I deliver. But during that process, I get a lot of questions in my head. It's like, well, what if I try this differently? What if I, you know, uh, do something completely unrelated, but kind of fills the same uh, niche or meaning or need? And, uh, and then I send them that footage afterwards and say, okay, well, here's your bonus round. If you want it, uh, there's a dollar, uh, dollar value associated to it. And pretty much every time they've paid for the extra round of footage that they didn't ask for. So, uh, a hidden yeah. opportunity here, folks, as well. The video angle doesn't look like it's being covered. Did did the exact same thing, you know, commercially. I had a, a big client here in Scotland, which was one of the national museums. I'd photograph all the weddings, all the private receptions, all the business functions that, that were held in the evenings in the museum. Uh, I'd photograph them for the clients, for the museum. But while I was doing that, I was always capturing B-roll on video, put together uh, this beautiful, real, you know, showcase of, of video for... Uh, the museum showcased it to them. They loved it. They wanted it. They had to pay for it. And then also commissioned me to do video at all future events. So yeah, there's definitely definitely an option there. I also noticed that they they share some examples of the type of food, uh, imagery that they would like. Or the and they're good images. Imagery. I'm assuming that yeah. these are pre-renovation. Yeah, and uh, I noticed that a few of them are aerial stuff, so they're probably looking for some drone footage, some aerial footage uh, of the of the location. No, 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 you want to do this right. You want to have your hand on the camera. You need to get them to pay for a yep. helicopter, <laughs> and you got to go up in a helicopter to do it right. Doors off. Doors <laughs> off helicopter, absolutely. Uh, uh, I, yeah, I, I rode in a, a Eurocopter, an AS350 uh, at one point, that actually had a custom door made that had a window that could be opened so that uh, you could stick your, your camera lens through that window. Uh, otherwise, like you said, I've, uh, I've done some shoots where, yeah, you've got to land uh, near the location, take the doors off the helicopter, and then go back in the air. But uh, that, would, that would add to the experience, I think. Yeah. Convince them of that. But I think for the right the right person at the right stage of their career uh, with a, with the skill sets, uh, this could, this could be a fun gig. It could be uh, a gig that leads to future things. You know, um, it could be a great portfolio builder as well if that's the type of world that you want to move into. So, yeah, not for Perfect. me though. Not for me either. Um, I don't know if I could necessarily, it's, it's, it would actually be helpful to have one boss for a three month period, uh, as a photographer, you know, every client is a boss, right? And so I don't have any consistency to that end. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, just entrench hey, yourself we, in something. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but before we get into our picks of the week, um, I want to ask you, uh, Alistair, where, where can people find you online? Uh, where can people interact with, uh, the communities that you're a part of, uh, and just say hello if they wanted to. Sure. Um, pretty much everywhere. I'm at Alistair Jolly, uh, you know, in all the, the various social places. I'm at Alistair Jolly on uh, Flickr as well, of course. I'd love people to go there and check out my my work on Flickr, be part of the community there. Um, I host uh, a live stream show called Smug Mug Live, where we uh, have guests on. We do a lot of uh, competition announcements, uh, product announcements. It's been a little bit quiet on Smug Mug Live recently as I've been traveling a fair bit after the, the pandemic's eased off a little bit. I'm back on the road. But um, yeah, you'll find me on Smug Mug Live. You'll find me on Flickr at Alistair Jolly. Um, and you'll find me in various groups on Flickr, um, which I love to do um, and commenting and liking people's imagery there. Um, but yeah, check me out there. And of course, my website is AMG, my initials, Alistair Morris and Jolly, amg.smugmug.com. All right. Well, those links will be in the show notes at photogeekweekly.com. <laughs> For everybody that, uh, that has been checking out the, the links to the articles that are also there, make sure you follow up with Alistair. Um, so picks of the week, uh, you know, we were talking about getting, uh, kind of caught up in the, in the race of always having the, the latest camera equipment. 
And uh, I, I've decided that I want to try and go in the other direction for a couple of series of work uh, that I'm putting together. One of them involves a camera, a digital camera that was released in 1998. And that happens to be the Game Boy camera. And uh, I had one when, when I was a child. And uh, I've seen a lot of people do articles of, uh, hey, let's, let's make this antiquated two-bit camera do something cool. And so uh, I found a, uh, a, a guy or a group, or I'm not sure um, who's actually put this together, but it's introducing the Camera Plus, uh, 2bittoy.card.co. And the link, again, will be in the show notes because there's a double R in there. It might be hard to, to find it. But check this thing out. Um, this is a new shell for the Game Boy camera. So you take it apart. Uh, and you've got the, uh, they've got links where you can order the 3d printed shell, uh, and all the components and even stickers for it. And Alistair, I tell you, I got it and I, oh. I am, I'm going to be using this thing. In fact, I already have, um, I've, uh, equipped it with a Canon EF mount and I've got a number of lenses for that. And I've got that. Yeah, that, that's actually a, a Trio Plan 100 that is on this right now because it's one of the few uh, EF lenses I have that's purely mechanical, and you want to have a mechanical lens as a result uh, of. I, I wish I wish the listeners could the camera body. I wish the listeners oh. could see this right now because you know you pull up this Game Boy and it's got this monster lens hanging off the end of it. Yep. Yep, and uh, I'm, I've actually got this attached to an analog pocket, not not a Game Boy. It, it is a yeah. replica of a Game Boy, um, but it uses modern technology, and it can play uh, Game Gear games, and with adapters, it can play other things too. Um, but the way that they design it for that compatibility means that the, the, the lip on the back um, doesn't cover the cartridge enough. And so uh, it just barely sits in there and it would be so top heavy in this mm. uh, environment that uh, it would actually break the cartridge. So I've got some crab clamps that are holding it together Taking and uh, just making sure that it, it uh, distributes the weight properly. And another one, uh, a crab clamp with a little riser from Platypod onto a, uh, a camera a hot shoe adapter, and that's all being held together. And I have shot some macro work with this thing, and I tell you, it's fun. Uh, the Game Boy camera is, uh, it's got four uh, shades of gray. Well, black, white, and two shades of gray. So it's got two bits of data per every image that you take. Now, you can improve that by putting uh, RGB filters quickly in front of the lens before it readjusts uh, the exposure, taking a picture, and then uh, combining those images together so that you can get a six-bit color image as a result. And I'm going to do a series of macro work with my professional skill set with a toy camera from the 90s, and I'm going to have some fun with it. Part of this has to... It has to be fun, right? I yeah. I get so many gigs that I can technically achieve, but I don't like to because it's not fun. So I got to go back and revisit the fun element of the stuff that I'm doing, and I'm about to do that with uh, the two bit toy. So wow! Yeah, so nineteen uh, ninety one was it? Ni- yeah, nineteen ninety one. I bought my Game Boy in New York City when I was there, and to this day, it's. Uh, it's only ever had one cartridge in it. I'm sure you can guess which one. Tetris. Tetris. So it's a Tetris <laughs> Game Boy. That's all it's ever been. Um, and it still sits in the, the bathroom for those occasions when I find myself just wasting some time. And um, I never, ever thought of putting a camera on it. I, I'll be honest, I didn't even know there was one. I must there have was, missed, yes. I must have missed uh, that. So maybe maybe I could find another another use other than Tetris for my Game Boy. There you go. And and they even uh, uh, wrapped in connectivity to the Game Boy printer, which was also a thing that they produced. It mm. would print on uh, thermal tape paper. Yeah. Uh, like a tin receipt. Exactly. Uh, but in doing that, it established a protocol of sending the images out off of the, uh, off of the camera onto something else. And I remember the... Uh, game accessory manufacturer, uh, now long defunct, Mad Cats, had a parallel port to Game Boy link cable adapter and software for Windows 95 or 98 for you to capture the images onto your computer and create a digital version of that. And there's been a lot of hacks since then in order to get the images off of the Game Boy camera. But 
the analog pocket has a screenshot feature. And I can just press their, uh, their special uh, analog button uh, dedicated to you know, interface with their software. And I think it's the start button or the select button. And it'll take a screenshot of whatever's on the screen and save it to a micro SD card. And then I can just plug that into my computer. So I don't have to worry about setting up some weird uh, Arduino or you know, some strange interface device through a link cable or anything like that. Uh, all I have to do is simply press those buttons and transfer that uh, over. And uh, I'm again, this is just pure fun. How much can you get out of an old camera? And you know what I'm actually going to try to do? I'm going to try to run those images through um, on one resize AI and Topaz Gigapixel AI <laughs> and see what they can get out of a Game Boy camera image. Uh, that'll be fun. Enjoyable. So, um, and you know what, you can get, uh, the, the, the bits and pieces I bought, I, the 3d printing stuff is not expensive. Uh, and they also put links to where you can get a, uh, uh, an infrared blocking filter. And, uh, the, as I said, the, the stickers and the camera mount, which by default is designed to function with a CCTV camera mount. Uh, and then I bought an adapter for the EF mount from that. And it's all available, uh, in the links on the show notes, um, and I will, you know what I'll actually do is I'll put an image of, uh, of one of the photos that I've taken with this in the show notes, go check it out. Tell me what you think. And am I, if I'm just completely off my rocker, uh, and, uh, going after something that is just so silly, let me know. Otherwise I'm just going to keep going. And, uh, <laughs> Alistair, what is, what is your pick? Well, I was just going to say and that folks is why Don is the photo geek. <laughs> <laughs> I also have uh, I have the Panasonic, the very first uh, digital camera that Panasonic ever produced. The it's like the KXL six hundred A, if I remember correctly, uh, in nineteen ninety seven, and that was a, a six forty by four eighty color camera. Uh, wow. And I'm going to do a series of work with that too, just to see what the cameras of that generation, whether they be a a toy or a prosumer product, what you can do with them today. So. I don't know. Uh, I'm I'm crazy, but I enjoy it. <laughs> enjoy How about Christmas. you, Alistair? What what's uh, what is your pick? My pick of the week. Um, yeah, you're going to have to forgive me, folks. I'm going to be a little self indulgent here. I am obviously global brand manager for for Smugmug and Flickr, but my pick this week, and bear with me here because it does get back to me, is Fujifilm's camera to cloud technology. Um, back in I think it was October last year at Adobe Max, Fujifilm announced that they were part of uh, a project with FrameIO to create camera-to-cloud technology, basically taking an image on your camera and it appearing in the cloud. I am delighted to be working on a project at the moment that will see SmugMug become the first company in the world that will have camera-to-gallery technology. So you will be able to eventually be able to use a Fujifilm camera to take a, a raw image, a still image, and for it to instantly appear in your SmugMug gallery, ready for your clients to see, to consume, even to buy through our e-commerce solution. And it is an exciting time, Don. It really is. We will be showcasing this uh, in just a few weeks' time at uh, WPPI in Vegas, the, the, the big wedding and portrait convention that's in Vegas in March and we'll be there with Fujifilm showcasing how you can take a picture with their um, X-H2S camera and for it to instantly appear in your smug mug gallery. So this, I don't know, it's kind of a cliche thing to, to use the, the phrase, but this is a game changer for anybody doing mm -hmm. um, event photography. When you Absolutely. have to take like a thousand photos in, in a day of, uh, you know, participants in a, in a rally or vendors at a flea market or, you know, there's so many different scenarios where having an immediately available and the immediacy is super important for a lot of these events, because once the event is over, usually they might happen on a single day or on a weekend. Um, people start to forget about it and, and lose interest. So the faster you can get um, that image in their hands and put a few dollars behind it, if that's, uh, if that's your game, then this could be a huge advantage. And I know that I've done some event photography in the past, 
and it's always okay you download the images and and it's always a hurry to get them up and online anything from an automotive flea market to ski racing and other things like that where if you are slow at getting that to the customer that customer's already already gone on to the next ski race Uh, they don't really they don't care. So that immediacy is super important. And it sounds yeah. like you're solving that a little bit here. Yeah, you hit, you hit the nail on the head. That's exactly the angle we're coming from. You know, some of our biggest clients, some of our most important clients are event photographers on Smug Mug, um, you know, school sports, uh, you know, consumer sports, um, rallies, motorsport, marathons, uh, you know, headshots, all that type of stuff, weddings, where you're taking large volumes of imagery for an event that is going to, you know, as you say, be a game changer. If those people can see the image while they're at the event um, or very quickly afterwards, yeah, can you imagine shooting an event and as you're shooting it, your images are already uploaded to the gallery? Um, It's a really exciting time. It is, it's not something that's, you know, fully baked and ready for uh, our our customers to use yet, but we will be showcasing um, that technology very soon. And we hear all the time from our event photographers, you know, the, you know, I need to upload faster. That is the one biggest hurdle. Again, I keep re- re- referring back to my dinosaur days back in the day when I was a wedding photographer. You know, I first started back in the 90s and we were shooting on film. We would leave the wedding. We would print, you know, a small selection of images from the day, take them back to the reception at night and we'd sell them to folk. You know, the the people want a nice memory of the event and especially while they're still there. Um, yeah, and, and otherwise, uh, you know. like if you try to uh, get the bride and groom to uh, solicit the purchases of, of mm. prints afterwards, it's not going to happen. If you don't yeah. do it right then and there and walk around, uh, you don't get that money. And, yeah, that, and oh, of course, that's not that the primary income you're getting paid to shoot the wedding. But yeah, take take the extra wins if you can get them. Yeah, I mean, this isn't this isn't for your bride and groom, you know, for your client, your immediate client. You still have a relationship with them. You're going to fulfill a whole different role for them, creating beautiful imagery that's beautifully edited and packaged together in an album. That's it's a whole different scenario. But for the other consumers at the event, whether it's you know the audience at a sports event, whether it's the parents of a a child at a sports event, whether you're a, a runner in a marathon, you know, you just finished the mar- your first ever marathon and somebody has a great picture of you crossing the line and it's there as you get your medal and you're still sweaty, it's, it's engaging, right? And combine that with technologies such as QR codes, you know, our, our galleries on SmugMug automatically create a QR code for that gallery. You can just share that QR code with someone to their device. They look at it, they open it, they can see their own images. It's just a really exciting time to be using the the, the best of the opportunities when it comes to a digital workflow or a client workflow for your, you know, for your business. Um, and I think I'm really excited about it. It's still very early. You know, this isn't ready. It, the technology's there. It's built into the, the Fujifilm cameras. We have the links to SmugMug, we just need to package that up in a way for it to become uh, available to the mass market, but super exciting. And then also think about if in that workflow, that instantaneous workflow, you start to combine in some of the incredible AI editing software that's out there. So not only is the image uploaded, but it's, it's culled, curated, and edited, and then uploaded almost instantaneously. That is just remarkable. That blows my mind to think about that future. Once we can fit these puzzle pieces together, uh, I mean, they they all exist somewhat in in separation right now, uh, but it sounds like you're taking the first step into gluing those pieces together in a way that is very synergistic. Yeah, I mean, mean, I've I've seen it. We've we've done it. Um, It works. It's just a bit, you know, needs, needs some engineers to put it together, which, you know, um, isn't, you know, ready for mass market. But the, you know, I've been at SmugMug for 11 years now, which is crazy to think of. And I remember back 11 years ago talking about this utopia future where you could take a picture on your camera, instantly appears on SmugMug, thinking that, you know, I'd be an old retired man by the time that kind of technology was available. 
It's here. And now, yeah. now you're the pioneer of that technology here. And uh, well, pioneer of the, the the showcasing piece of it. Obviously, um, the camera brands such and right. Fuji Films way ahead of the game. You know, they're the, they're at the forefront of this. Um, but every other brand is going to be working on it as well. And we're delighted to be the first um, the first in our space to be able to do this and and just make it such such friendly and usable experience both for the photographer and for the uh the consumer of your content there there's some really cool possibilities for this i think um you know even if you know if i was uh doing a um a photography workshop and i was taking sample images with my camera and then immediately anybody attending the workshop could go and and download the resulting images and inspect them and critique them all on their own computers immediately after I've taken them without me having to go and do extra steps, then the use cases are vast. As soon as you start thinking about how this could change uh, your your business, your workflow, that's cool. So thanks for bringing that to our attention as as your pick. Uh, WPPI is where you do the the real... uh, uh, the full and proper demo of it, and that's coming up yeah. soon, right? WPPI starts on the 6th of March, um, so we'll be in Vegas for a week. Um, if you happen to be there, come come over to the Fujifilm booth and you'll find ourselves there Yeah, showcasing just how incredible this actually is. So, yeah, we're going we're gonna to spend a week with Fujifilm. They're very focused on on this technology. It's uh, They're putting a lot of... Um, a lot of investment into this and really staking the, the future on this type of technology. And for our client base, it's, yeah, it's, it's easy to see. And it's a bit of a cliche, but it is a game changer. All right. Anybody at WPPI? Uh, uh, Alistair, are you going to be there yourself? Yep, I will be there. I will be demonstrating. I think I'll be on stage a couple of times as well with Fujifilm. Um, so, yeah, if, you, if you're in Vegas uh, for WPPI, please uh, come find the Stop top Stop by and say guy. hello. Yeah. I, I won't be there, unfortunately, but I'm glad you will. And uh, I know a number of friends and colleagues that always enjoy going to that show, not just for the presentations and the product demos and everything else, but just to connect uh, with the others networking. in the industry. Yep. Yeah, the networking is, is huge for WPPI. Yeah, All right. especially well, you recently, you know, with, with the past few years, where we've not been able to, uh, to be together. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's great to be back uh. Safe, we went but, to our yeah. first uh, like live event recently. Uh, the uh, Kiev uh, Symphony Orchestra was playing mm-hmm. here in Varna, Bulgaria, doing uh, an arrangement of, uh, of music from Lord of the Rings, of all oh, things. Wow. And, uh, you know, sold out performance. It was wonderful to get back in person uh, and, to, and to support them in what they were doing. And um, it was... Uh, it, it, it felt weird at first. Uh, it's like, okay, well, now I'm in a crowded room with hundreds of people and uh, everybody's uh, hooting and hollering and all that. And it's like, okay, well, I think the world is healing. We're getting back to normal uh, a little bit. Still, you know, uh, you know, be sensible about certain things. Indeed. It's hard it, It's hard for us because I mean, we've got a six and a half year old, uh, you know, girl that goes to school and she's been sick a number of times this year from whatever viruses are going around right now they've got uh you know some variety of strep uh in in the mm. daycare it's like all right well that's that's what i'll get next uh, it's hard hard to avoid always that part of being but, a parent <laughs> yep exactly exactly well yeah. hey now that we're all getting back out and enjoying the world uh the tagline to end the show is coming up in a second but uh alistair thanks for being on again uh Don't great to have you, so you. Much for the invite. it's been too long yeah It's been too long. Gotta have you back on again soon. Pleasure. Thanks for being here. And thanks to everybody for listening. And now it's time to get out and shoot. (laughs) 